Well, somebody drive before we crash into something. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hi, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks, episode 111. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Mike Ash. Howdy from uh, Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City. Uh, this week, we, we are going to talk about some of the new stuff that that we heard about at WWDC just well, for us. It was last week. There was a lot of new stuff to digest and we're all still going through it, but we wanted to talk about some of the things that were impressive to us and exciting and what they mean for developers going forward. So I wonder what, what everybody was most excited about that was announced last week. Apple music, well, Apple music. <laughs> that's all of us. Oh. That's, that's the whole thing. That's the whole episode. You were the one just enthralled by Eddie Q's demo, right? Alondo. Well, I was mesmerized by Jimmy Iovine, so... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That made me think this keynote is not for developers, but there was good stuff before that, so I just ignore it. I just pretended like it never happened. Yeah, I wonder if they just had a lot of time to fill from the lack of Apple TV. You know, I get the feeling. Yeah, I get the feeling that's exactly what happened. And the thing I is... I, th- I think they might have been serious about it. You know, well, I think they, they might think this stuff is cooler than we do, or at least than, than I do. I don't want to speak for anybody else. Well, that was pretty much the takeaway I got. There wasn't a lot of excitement about it. There were a few people that thought as a service it, was, it may be interesting because they use something like Spotify or RDO, but it wasn't something that developers were super keen on. Except for Alondo. Well, yeah, the Drake was there. I mean, what do you want me to do? <laughs> that was my favorite segment of the whole keynote. I mean, Drake's great and all, but he came out and said, just like, I like Apple. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> I will say there, the one thing that I, I did think was interesting, but it did not affect me personally, was that the announcement that Metal um, was being uh, ported to OS X. And uh, I know some people were excited about that, although not as many as probably the bulk of the developers you know, in the room. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I'm not a huge Metal person, but the people I know that are into Metal are very excited about it. We had Warren Moore on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I remember asking him about this, and, and you know he kind of said, well, I don't really know anything about whether it's coming or not, but yeah, there's no reason it can't, and then a couple of weeks later... Well, he actually, we had, we had drinks on Sunday. He actually predicted. He said he thinks it's coming. Oh, uh, good. 
So okay. it's pretty cool. Well, I'm sure he's happy about it, right? Oh yeah, he's quite excited about it. Even a big it's an even bigger audience for what he's doing, if nothing else. But hearing about metal on OS ten, I'm a Mac developer, so that does sort of matter to me. I'm not a game developer, but I thought it was interesting they said they they rewrote portions of core graphics and core animation on top of metal. There's also integration between core image and metal. I, I don't quite understand if that means that core image will benefit from performance improvements. They talked in the core image session about you being able to pull metal textures into your core image filters and, and get them out, but not exactly sure if it meant performance improvements. But anyway, it seems like metal is more than just a good thing for game developers if they're using it to improve performance of graphics APIs that even regular app developers use. Yeah, it seems, you know, I'm not much of a graphics guy, but it seems like, uh, you know, OpenGL is getting a little long in the tooth. It's kind of not matching the hardware anymore. And uh, there's other replacements out there like Metal, which aren't very far along. And, um, you know, it seems everything that just touches on graphics is ultimately going to be affected by this. So it, uh, I think it ought to be good for everybody. Yep, sounds like a good thing. Anything they can do to give us performance improvements free, I'm happy with. So I think I was probably most interested in the new Swift stuff, even though I'm not really using Swift for my everyday work at my job right now. It just seems like it's it continues to mature and become something that actually seems like a language I want to, you know, write apps in. Yeah, I think I think this uh, with the new features they've announced, it's finally kind of crossed the threshold into uh, you know before it was like you could definitely do stuff with it. Obviously, people shipped apps with it, but it was a little bit. You know, not quite there. Like you were using it because you were hopeful for the future, and I think that's arrived now. I think it's now like finally really solid. Mike, do you want to kind of summarize the changes that they announced for Swift? There's a, several big features, and uh, in no particular order, we've got error handling, which looks a lot like exception handling from other languages, but is not quite the same, and it uh, interoperates very nicely with Coco's NS error stuff, and um, I think kind of solves that whole problem pretty nicely. Finally, we have support for function pointers from C. So that was kind of the big hole in uh, bridging to C APIs before, is that function pointers basically weren't supported, and you just couldn't really use any APIs that did function pointers. And now that's essentially solved. Um, you can pass a lot of Swift functions in and out for function pointers and just use them kind of naturally. And protocol extensions are another huge deal. Uh, these let you implement methods in protocols themselves so that when you implement a protocol, you get some code along for free, which uh, allows a whole lot of nice behaviors. You can basically, a protocol now is not only just an interface, but also sort of a collection of default behavior, which uh, really helps reduce duplication and make code a lot more natural. And let's see, we got guard statements, which is sort of an upside down if statement. And it's uh, kind of a simple thing, but helps make code a lot clearer for the uh, cases where you're doing things like checking a bunch of conditions up front and then bailing out of a method before you run the real code. And we got a defer statement, which is sort of like a finally clause, uh, except you can put it anywhere and basically lets you kind of aggregate your cleanup code wherever you uh, it's most natural instead of trying to put it next to every return statement in your code. And uh, those are the big ones off my list. I have a question. I went to a value type session and I wasn't sure because I didn't really make a dive into Swift initially, but I was really impressed with, with the talk on value types in Swift. And it was one of the things, along with some of the other features that you mentioned, that made us reconsider when we were going to go ahead and start using Swift. And we've decided now that we're just going to go ahead and start writing new code in Swift. But I didn't know if you could, could you speak to value types a little bit? Yeah. So that's been a thing uh, with Swift from the beginning. And it's, uh, it's getting 
nicer and nicer to use, especially with things like protocol extensions. But basically what it, you know, what it comes down to is Swift has first class support for structs. A value type essentially is, you know, when you do an equals, then you get a new version of it. Whereas with the reference type, like with the class, uh, you pass around references to it, everybody sort of shares one. And if one bit of code changes it, then another bit of code sees that change and it can be a big mess. So Objective-C has that same kind of dichotomy there with structs and classes, but uh, Objective-C structs aren't very useful. They can't contain methods. Uh, with ARC, it's very difficult to even put objects in them, and you don't really see them very much except for things like CG point. In Swift, structs are full, you know, first-class citizens. You can put methods on them. They can adopt protocols, and uh, they work really nicely. And that lets you do nice things with your own code, where if you implement your model as value types, you don't have to worry about who has a reference to them and things like that because they can't get changed behind your back because that's uh, value type semantics prohibit that. Yeah, and so in, in Objective-C, we kind of try to get some of the same benefits by having, especially for foundation classes, having immutable and mutable variants where it's a reference type, but because it's immutable, you don't have to worry about somebody changing it, but that can get pretty hairy and you have to sort of check to know if something's mutable or not or explicitly make a copy. And I think the fact that we have really nice first class types that are value types in Swift is a pretty big win. I think so. And Apple also did a really good job of explaining why and how to use value types in their demonstrations, their presentations. Yeah, they've got some some really good sessions on that. Definitely, if anybody's confused about this stuff and why it matters, go watch those. Yeah, we've all been saying, yeah, you should do it this way. Value types, structs, do it, let. But the why has been a little confusing sometimes. So I, w- I want to talk about this this new error handling. For some reason, among people that I know, there's been a lot of discussion about this. And in particular, there seems to have been some complaint that Apple did things the way they did, which is it looks a lot like exception handling where functions can throw. And when you call a function that, that throws, you, you use try and, and you have a catch block. You, know, you have a do catch block. And if, if the function throws an error, your, the, the code in your catch block runs. And also the compiler enforces that. So you can't not have a catch block. You can't just ignore the error. The other way that they could have done things that a lot of people seem to think they should have done things is to use like a result type where you have a a tuple that can either have the the return value or has an error. One of the elements of the tuple is an error that might be filled in. I wonder if if you guys have seen this this debate and have any thoughts on it. I don't really have a fully formed opinion because I, I think partly because I haven't really been writing a lot of Swift yet. All right. So we've been using the you know, the tuple return pattern for things that can fail in, in our Swift code. So you just create a quick tuple. You can name it or or not. And that's worked out pretty well. Um, I haven't really given much thought to kind of the try-catch thing. I, I've done it, I did it pretty heavily doing C-sharp work. But I know there's a lot of groans when it was announced, probably by people who are doing Java with it, but I'm not sure. But this does seem like an improvement, and it's a, it's a good model for things that can break pretty spectacularly, like going to a file system and things like that. Yeah, we'll have to see how it works out. You know, it's um, So much of this stuff is really difficult to evaluate until you spend like a good couple of months working with it in the real world. But so far, I think it's pretty solid. It's not quite exception handling. You know, it looks like it a lot, but it's not. You know, importantly, you can't throw through a bunch of arbitrary code like you can with a typical exception handling system. So when you're writing in, in other languages that do support exceptions and use them, you kind of have to be paranoid all the time. Like whenever you're writing code, you know, what happens if an exception gets thrown here, through here? And uh, Swift restricts it a lot more so that it you, you can definitely tell exactly when it's happening. And I think it's a really interesting feature 
with the syntax that they chose where typically in an exceptions language you have a try block and then anything within that try block if it throws it goes to the catch clause and in Swift you have a do block and then you have to write try in front of every single statement that can potentially throw so what happens a lot of time in a language like Java is that you end up with a try block that's 20 lines long and of those 20 lines three of them can actually throw and the rest just happen to be in there and there's no easy way to figure out which are which you, know, you have to actually know the APIs or look them all up and the way Swift makes it work is you, you have a try keyword in front of every statement that can actually throw. So you might have 20 lines within a do block, but you can just visually see this could throw, this could throw, or this could throw. And I think that'll reduce confusion a lot. As far as, you know, I've, I've heard the complaint from people as well that, uh, you know, it forces you to handle errors. You have to put everything in a do block or something like that. And all I can say to that is, you know, too bad you should be doing that anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that was one of the whole points, right? They, in, in Objective C or in, in other languages, it's just really easy to ignore an error. In Objective C, you just pass in null for your error pointer and completely ignore even checking. So they wanted to make it so that was not such an easy thing to do. I think it's good to point out that there is an escape hatch. If you ever have a case where you're certain that you're never going to have an error, you know, something's marked as throws, but you know that it's only in certain circumstances and you're not going to hit those, then you can write try with an exclamation point, which, you know, is kind of the, the universal swift shut up, I know what I'm doing command. And so if, if you are in a situation like that, you're not going to find yourself writing useless catch blocks that never happen. You can just uh, hit the exclamation point, kind of get on with your life. That's a good point. So this this whole error you mentioned this this error handling that they added Swift interoperates really well with the existing Objective C Cocoa convention for for doing error handling with NS error. Yeah, it's really cool. So anytime there's a method in, on the Cocoa end that uh, has an NS error double star pointer to return an error, the Swift compiler knows what that means and automatically translates it to a throws method, which does not have that error parameter. So it all just kind of happens the way you'd want it to. It's, uh, anything that uses the old style Cocoa NS error stuff just also uses the new style Swift error handling without any changes. There, there was one detail about that that I'd thought of, but I haven't checked into and I, I wasn't clear on, which is that in Objective-C, the convention is actually that um, the return value of, of the method that can uh, produce an error is what tells you if an error happened or not. So you don't check the return by reference error. You check to see if the return value was yes or no or you know perhaps nil for something that returns an object. And then from that, you can tell if an error occurred and that's when you go use the error. Does Swift, I know this bridging is done by the compiler, but is, does Swift follow that convention or are they checking the, the return by reference error? How, how are they handling that? Because the question is you don't actually necessarily know what return means there was an error. Yeah, that's a really good point. So what happens is in, uh, in actual use, like 99% of the time, it's either this method returns an object pointer and nil signals an error or this method returns a bool and no signals an error. And so what happens is Swift compiler sees if there's an object pointer return type or a bool return type, it goes to those cases. And it's, it's checking the return value, not the error pointer, just like you're supposed to. And it doesn't try to bridge other cases. So if there's any sort of weird case where it's like returning an integer and, you know, an error is indicated by returning three, it's not going to try to guess that and get it wrong. It just, you know, it won't do the work for you. But that case almost never happens, you know, in the frameworks. It's almost always an object pointer or a Boolean return, so okay. it handles, well, handles almost everything for you. That answers that question. I, I assumed they had done something like that, because that's a pretty strong convention, and especially in Cocoa, the frameworks themselves, it's followed well. Of course, 
other people can write whatever the whatever code they want. But yeah, that was pretty much my, my one of my first thoughts too when they talked about the bridging was you know how is that going to work? So if you happen to be writing Objective C code that has a boolean return and yes means error and no means it succeeded, then you know don't do that. You're not going to be happy bridging to Swift. But uh, I'm hoping that won't actually turn up in the real world. Hope not. The second thing you mentioned is C pointer interop for Swift. Yeah, and, function pointers. Sorry, yeah, C function pointer interop. This is actually something that has prevented me from using Swift because I do a fair amount with core audio and core MIDI and actually have some IO kit code and a few things I work on. And, and a lot of those C APIs like that, they take function pointers as arguments to API methods, function pointers to functions that you provide. And I think core audio is a really good uh, example of that where you have render callbacks and you pass in a pointer to your render callback or whatever. So that that, that was just impossible to write with Swift. And yeah, I, a lot of those APIs are kind of growing block variants where there's, you know, there's one that takes a function pointer and then there's this, uh, the same basic thing that takes a block instead, but there definitely is not universal coverage yet. And some of that's new. I know like Core MIDI got some new block-based API where previously you had to pass in function pointers, but it was new as of this newest release that was just announced. So it coincides with with Swift getting a function pointer capability, and it's nice to have, but it didn't fix my problems a year ago. Anyways, have you looked into the the way that works at all? I haven't. I, I think they talked about it a little in one session I watched, but no details. Yeah, so it's uh, it's very nicely done. First, I think back up real quick and talk about why this is even a problem. And the issue is basically that C function pointers are too simple, and a C function pointer is literally just like the address of the code that implements the function. You know, if you if you have a function that does something and it's got some code in memory, and if you pass a pointer to that function, it's literally just saying, when you call this, jump here. And the problem is that there's no extra data associated with it. So when you have something like an Objective-C block, then you're potentially capturing variables from the enclosing scope, and that's all supplemental data. So when you call a block, then you're not only saying jump here, but you're also saying jump here, and when you call it, give it this extra data that goes along with it so it knows how to access all these captures and whatnot. And uh, Swift functions often do that as well, and kind of fundamentally they all do that, or at least they all can. You can write a nested named function in Swift that captures variables from the enclosing scope, when you write methods in a Swift class, it's it's uh, fundamentally a curried function, which means that it has extra state going along with it. And so that's kind of fundamentally incompatible with C function pointers. So the way they solve this is essentially they broke the idea of a function type into variants. So there's a Swift variant, which is the normal, you know, here's a function. And then there's the C variant, which is this is a function that is compatible with C function pointers because it doesn't capture anything. It doesn't have any supplemental data. You can just refer to it by address of of its code. And so from Swift, those are first-class function types in both cases. And so what happens is when you have a parameter like that and you try to pass a function in, the compiler looks at what you're passing in and says, is this actually compatible? You know, is it capturing any extra data or is it standalone? And if it's standalone, it just lets it happen. It does all the work for you. So you can have a global function that you pass in just like you would in C, or you can even have a local closure as long as it doesn't capture anything and just put your code, your code right there in line. So it's very nice. That sounds good. I was sort of worried before the conference last week. I was sort of worried that whatever API they, or, you know, whatever system they came up with was going to be sort of like some of the existing C pointer API where there's lots of casting back and forth between unsafe mutable pointer and this and that. Sounds like they've made something that actually works 
Yeah, it's, it's really nice. I think it, it seems like one of those solutions where, in retrospect, it looks obvious, and it's like, well, you know, of course this is what they did. What else would they have done? Uh, I don't think it really was obvious, but uh, you know, it's it's one of those nice solutions that just fits right once you see it. Those are the best kind. So, so some of these things we've talked about: error handling, C function pointers. They, they were actually areas where, uh, in some sense, Swift was missing something that Objective C already had, or at least a something that it needed to bridge to objective C. And then another, another thing that you did not mention is that they, they actually added generics to objective C sort yes. of, uh, it's a pretty lightweight, they call it lightweight generics, not like a full on, well, objective C makes that pretty hard because of, because so much stuff is deferred until runtime, but uh, yeah, they're kind of Java style generics where it's all just sort of like in the compiler in, the, uh, when you're building stuff and it sort of goes away at runtime, but, uh, you know, just little bits help like that. It's, it's very nice to have an array where the compiler knows what's in it. Even if it's not doing anything at runtime, it's still nice to just, you know, you get code completion and you can just look at it, see what it is instead of having to look up the documentation. Yeah, so I played around with it a little, and it's very, very easy to, I don't know if you'd say fool it, but, you know, do things at runtime that completely violate whatever you've declared. But they, they right, have added... If you, if you have an array of strings, you can easily put a number in it. Yeah. Right. Yep. But they have added some compile time checking, even to the Objective-C compiler, so that it will warn you about some common error cases, which seems nice. And of course, that was mainly to bridge to Swift, I think. I mean, the whole idea is that you get a lot of these, a lot of objective, or well, all Objective C APIs that return collections in particular will say return an NSRA. And you know, because, you know, you know by looking at the API or reading the documentation exactly what types are going to be in the array, but the Swift compiler doesn't know that at all. And so it would get bridged to an array of any objects, and then you have to downcast it yourself. And now you don't have to do that if the APIs have been redone in Objective C, and I think they've done that with a lot of the system APIs, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, they, they've been kind of doing that all along as as they add features to Objective C to help support Swift bridging. Is kind of go through all the yeah, frameworks and make sure they're up to date with that. So, I guess it's kind of sad for an Objective C programmer to see that now the only reason they improve Objective C is if it helps Swift, <laughs> but but I guess we get the benefits anyway. Well, I, th I think you're right, but on the other hand, there was a sort of a great stagnation for a very long time, you know, sort of back before the LLVM days when we were still using GCC and Objective-C kind of didn't change. And when it did change, it was little stuff or it was crazy stuff like garbage collection. And, you know, now we have Clang, we have LLVM, we're getting lots of cool new stuff and, uh, you know, I wouldn't fret too much. Well, and I, I guess the funny thing is that some of the stuff that we got during the time when Objective-C was improving really quickly, that was directly or indirectly because Swift work was going on and we didn't even know about it. Yeah, it seems like, you know, if you look, Swift is, what, about five years old now from when it first started being worked on, and that's kind of when Objective-C started getting cool stuff like Arc. Yep. Well, anyway, I, where I was going with all of that is that there are a couple things, I'm particularly thinking of guard and defer, that have no analog really. Well, I mean guard kind of, because some of that stuff's just easier in Objective-C than it was in Swift, but um, particularly defer has no analog in Objective-C, as far as I know. Unless you kind of roll your own some, you know, somehow where you define a block at the top of a method and then just call that to sort of... Yeah, there's a, there's a couple ways you could do the equivalent. Um the most obvious, I'd say, would be if you use a try and final with a finally block. You know, you, you can use try even if you're not handling exceptions. You can just do like at try, put in some code, then you do at finally, have your cleanup code, and then, you know, no matter how you get out of the try block, that cleanup code will still fire. So it's kind of like that. 
really. Uh, I've never seen anyone actually write Objective C code that way, so you know maybe I, we shouldn't count it. I was just gonna say, and then I guess there are go- people will put a label at the bottom of a method and then use go to. Sort of yeah, yeah. So you could do that. There's a GCC extension that Clang also supports that lets you define a cleanup function on a variable. So you could use that as well. But uh, yeah, there's there's really nothing exactly like it, and it's pretty cool. So just uh, you know, to elaborate on exactly what it is, you just write anywhere in in the code. You just write defer, and then you put a block of code. And then what happens is when you leave that enclosing scope, whether you fall off the end or you do a return or you do a break or anything like that that code that you have deferred will run right before you exit. So the idea is you can like allocate a resource somewhere at the top of a block of code, and then right after that you'd write defer, and then you write the cleanup for that resource, and you're, you know what's going to happen. This is something that I, I you know, I, in code that I've written, I immediately saw how this is a pretty nice thing to have, because there's certainly times where I write code where there are multiple early exits, because you know, you're checking error conditions as you go. But you have cleanup, like resources that you need to release or um, state that you need to put back in the right state, and uh, you end up duplicating code pretty quickly. Yeah, so you end up with this cleanup code sort of all over the place, and it's so easy to forget a spot because, you know, maybe you're returning early, like three different places, and you forget one of them. It's a nice way to solve that. So how does it know when to run the defer block? Well, it's... Yeah, it's uh, basically whenever you leave the enclosing block, however it happens. So if you hit a return statement, then the compiler will generate code that executes your deferred stuff right before the return. If you fall off the end, then it runs right before you return to whatever uh, is enclosing it. If you hit a continue or a, a break, it'll just it'll run that. So it's however you get out, or even if you throw an error, that's that's an important case to mention since that's a, another big new thing here. Okay, so just whenever you exit... You yeah, the, you know, the call. It doesn't do right. any magic. No, nope, there's uh, it's all compile time, really. You know, it's basically you're just telling the compiler, you know, hey, whatever, you know, for all the paths out of this, run this code first. Okay, can you chain them together? Have them in multiple places? Yeah. So uh, if you have more than one defer block in the same chunk of code, then what happens? They just run in reverse order. So you can have defer A, defer B, defer C, and when you exit that block, it'll do C, B, A. And I believe I, I should probably test this, but I believe if you have like defer A and then you return there at like a conditional return, and then afterwards you have defer B, then in that early return only A will run. So you can use defer in combination with you know an early check and return to allocate a bunch of different resources and clean them up individually properly. So I think it all, you know, pretty much works the way you would want it to. Is there anything else about Swift that they announced that's important that we should talk about? The only other thing that I had was the guard statement, which is a pretty minor thing. It's kind of like an upside down if and it it's it's not a huge thing, but it makes uh code nicer to write, you know, with uh if you're writing code that has one of those early checks and return if things are bad, it just uh cleans that up, stops you from having a bunch of nested things, and uh, I don't think it's going to fundamentally change anything. It's not like error handling where this is a really you know, huge change to the language, but uh, I think it ought to make things nicer. Yeah, so I think in Swift 1, it's it's easy to get into a situation, particularly I think with optionals, where you have if, let, and and before they added the multiple conditions, in, or yeah, I guess they're conditions, multiple pattern matching, you'd have this, you could get long nested if, lets, and it was kind of gross and ugly and yeah you get the pyramid of doom where it's just nested 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 and then here's your real code and then you come back out so guard just lets you avoid all that and you know the combining conditions into a single if helps a lot with that but this makes it even better so that's great 
So what else made you guys happy that was announced? I actually like some of the improvements in Xcode, particularly with regard to storyboards. Uh, the stack view is pretty nice. Um, we've had some issues trying to get particular layouts to work, and uh, it's been a big, big pain in the butt. So uh, the stack view is a, is a nice new controller that we can use to kind of get these layouts. I know it behaves a little bit like the Android, uh, I want to say relative layout maybe, if, that, if that's the right comparison. But we're really pleased to see that. There was a lot of excitement from a lot of people there about that as well. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. So this it's a class called UI Stacked View. There's also a class on the Mac called NS Stacked View, which actually was introduced in 10.9 a couple of years ago. But I think they went so far as to say in a session that you should use a Stacked View first, and, and your first choice should be to use one of those and then only drop down and do your own auto layout stuff with, with constraints if you have to. Which I thought was interesting because I'm not actually, I'm not the world's biggest fan of the auto layout API. And I wonder if this was sort of planned all along or if it was a little bit of a like, yeah, we know this auto layout stuff is not exactly the best thing in the world, especially for simple layouts. And so we've come out with this way now where you guys don't have to worry about it so much because we've realized our mistake or whatever. I'm not sure that's really true, but either way, I'm kind of glad to see some support for these kind of more sophisticated layouts than what you could do with springs and struts, but without having to get your hands dirty with NS layout constraint, which is not my favorite class in the frameworks. No, definitely not. It's good to have a reasonable default that will work for a lot of cases. So I'm looking forward to that, even though I've gotten fairly good with auto layout, but it's nice to not to deal with it in every case. And I guess we should clarify that NS slash UI stack view, they're basically a view that you can use to create a horizontal or vertical list or stack of views, and it, they take care of laying them out and uh, spacing them, and you can hide views in the stack, and it will automatically relay out the other ones. And you can nest stack views, so they actually you can actually do some relatively complex common layouts with stack views and they completely hide they're implemented using auto layout but they hide that from you so you don't actually have to deal with the the layout constraints yourself some cool stuff that hopefully will make some common ui ui layout tasks easier and i've actually spent the morning today working on auto layout in a pretty complex mac app and it's uh, fresh in my mind that i'm tired of it <laughs> um i thought that uh they announced some new stuff for both core audio and core image um, which are lower level APIs that that looked really cool, and particularly Core Audio, which is something that I work with a fair amount. They have improved on some things that were introduced last year. Uh, they've moved a lot of functionality that was in the Core Audio C APIs into AV Foundation so that, that they're Objective C APIs. They're increasing the number of things you can do without having to drop down to the Core Audio C APIs. And one really big thing that I think is really cool is that they introduced a version 3 of the Audio Unit API. At least they're calling it version 3. I didn't know we were at version 2. But version 3 is Objective-C instead of being C, and they've made it now so you can write custom audio units for iOS, which is, I think, kind of a big deal. And you can ship those in app extensions, so other apps can use your custom audio units that you ship with your app on the App Store. This means you can write your own synthesizers and effects and things like that that then users can use in GarageBand and, you know, whatever app. And it works on OS X and iOS, which is cool. Um, that's kind of important to me. They've also added some MIDI stuff to AV Foundation, which I have a big MIDI framework that I maintain. Hopefully it kind of obsoletes some of my code. I would be happy about that. But I suppose that's a little bit uh, nerdy and esoteric because not everybody's an audio app programmer. 
Well, I, the, the audio unit stuff sounds really nice. You know, we, we've had pluggable audio units like since the dawn of time, but uh, very few people have actually used them. So it sounds like a really nice idea. If we can get more uh, developers doing that stuff, I think that'd be great. Yeah, well, and especially being able to ship, for some reason that I don't 100% understand, I'm not a musician, but iOS has actually become a fairly popular platform for music apps. There are a lot of people using it for music, and they've steadily improved the capabilities of iOS for audio, for music, and this is just one more step on that path, but uh, just even being able to ship audio units at all for iOS, custom audio units, is pretty cool. At least I think. I mean, it means you you could do things like ship custom guitar effects, and then your iPad is a guitar effects box, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, or if Skype supports it, I can show up next week with the Darth Vader voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I haven't dug in and used any of these yet because, of course, they're new and uh, you have to target the new version of the OS and can't. I can't do that with the stuff that I'm working on for real, but I'm excited to start playing with them as soon as I can and kind of learn them. And, of course, I think part of this, these improvements are also, again, so that things are easier with Swift because API written in Objective-C that's part of AV Foundation is easier to interface with in Swift than kind of an ancient C-only core audio API. And to be fair, those were not the easiest to use from Objective-C either. No, not even close. Unless you just like obscure error codes that tell you very little about what, what you actually did wrong. Hey, your format was wrong. I can't tell you which of the 20 parameters was wrong, but it's wrong. Yeah, negative 50 is a error number. Negative 50 is like a core audio programmer's worst enemy, but... Hopefully they've improved that too. I haven't really seen if they've improved error handling. For all I know, they're just wrapping those in an NS error and returning them. Let's hope not. Um, and then, and then, as far as core image goes, I think the big news was that they brought a whole bunch of the filters that were previously only on OS 10 to iOS. I think now they're at parity, so both platforms have the same set of filters, and it's a pretty big set. I think something like 200. They added custom core image filters or CI kernels to iOS last year. Uh, they've improved the language you use to write core image filters uh, with some new stuff that's enabled by improvements in LLVM. And then, of course, added integration with Metal, added integration with AV Foundation. So if you're doing anything with image processing, video processing, that kind of thing, core image is has always been really cool, but it's getting even better, and especially on iOS. I've worked on some apps that use core image very heavily, so I was kind of excited to see this. So one of the things that they moved pretty far forward was the ability to test, especially UI testing, which I thought they introduced a really new approach where you can actually replay clicking on your app, which everyone says, that's how I want to test things, and run them as part of your unit tests. Yeah, James, have you looked into that? Have you used it at all? Did you go to the sessions? So I I didn't check out the sessions, but pretty excited about it. I don't know the real details, but it does clean up a lot of tests that I know what to do, you know, setting up your nibs and make sure that's correct and make sure something happens when a button happens. Those are things that I frequently would do two tests for that. And now we can do that with one test and it's pretty clean. It actually tests the button and tests the nib is set up correctly or however else it's set up. So I think that's pretty powerful. Pete Hodgson mentioned there's a lot of room for abuse on it, a lot of repeated code, and we'll have to, to work through that and find cleaner ways of doing it. But I think it's it's going to be pretty powerful. People are pretty excited about it. And one thing that didn't get a lot of notice, but I saw in the, the State of the Union, was that we can run unit tests on different devices simultaneously. Not simultaneously, but as part of one test run. Because it's very common to change your nib in your iPad app and forget your, your iPhone and your test pass because you're running the iPad in the simulator, but not testing another case where you just broke something. So that's 
very valuable. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah, I definitely I like what I saw there. I did. I was able to attend the second half of that session. I didn't catch everything. The old way, I guess, was using the UI automation tool, and you could do recording, but it would spit all of the the test data in um, or the steps in JavaScript. And now it's actually generating Swift code that you can actually implement directly inside of your your UI unit test or or um, Objective C or Objective C. Yeah, I've pointed this out to a few people because they're saying it's like the first Swift only feature. And as far as I remember, that they actually announced that it will work in Objective C as well. Oh, uh, it doesn't matter because nobody uses Objective C anymore. No, nobody at all. No, I, I mean, it's great. I, I wouldn't actually be sad if it were only in Swift. I just thought it was interesting more than anything that they did not introduce a, a Swift only API here. Speaking of Swift-only APIs and being surprised, uh, they did replace the address book framework with a new contact framework. And I was actually, I said in that session, I was actually surprised that that was also written in Objective-C. I was fully expecting to see that written in Swift. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. To my knowledge, they have not written any of the system APIs in Swift yet, or at least if they have, nobody knows about it. I don't think they can expose that stuff until they finally figure out the uh, binary compatibility story. Oh, right, right. Which they yeah. still really haven't. Yeah. So right now they, they still are shipping the Swift libraries inside your app. Exactly. Getting back to the testing stuff, when I saw this, I thought, well, we do already have UI automation, and I thought the biggest improvements were that it uses Swift or Objective-C instead of JavaScript, which is nice for developers, because that those are the languages we're using anyway, not JavaScript. The recording looked like it actually worked fairly well. I've seen things that sort of do that before, and they're not, you know, they're okay, but they have limitations, and I'm sure this does too, but it seemed like it, it did pretty well. And they showed some cool stuff, like where it would automatically factor your code as you went. So like if it saw that the same object was being used multiple times, it would factor that out into a local variable to make the code read a little nicer. And another thing for me that is important is UI automation was iOS only. This new UI testing stuff also works on OS 10. Which yeah, is I cool. think it all sounds great. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to trying it out. You know, that's that's always been a big hole for me. I think for most developers is we write uh, a lot of us write tests pretty heavily for most of our code, but as soon as it touches the UI, we just sort of say, "Well, good luck." <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm really hoping that this will kind of help push me over the edge. I hope yeah, so our, too. Yeah, for our workflow, it's it's actually going to work really well because QA usually will send a recording of bugs that they find, and so we can also help a regression. So we can also capture all of those scenarios, create tests for them, add them into the test suite, and we can make sure that when we do make future changes, we're not blowing things up as we you know as we move forward. So there's one one other big new developer tool feature that I wanted to talk about, and I know Mike is happy about it, and that is the address sanitizer. I thought you were going to talk about the watch. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's actually something they announced, right, is watchOS 2 and, and native watch apps. The reason I've avoided bringing that up is because I've, I haven't tried writing a WatchKit 1 app, so I don't really know what. No, that's fine. We all know Mike is the number one watch evangelist. I think he, he you wear one on each wrist, right, Mike? I I, uh, I still think it's a practical joke. I think it's kind of gotten away from them a little bit. You know, <laughs> they, they they seem to have actually gotten to the point where they're shipping products, and you know it's probably pretty awkward to come forward and say, oh, "This is all a joke now." But uh, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. They just got to find the right moment to tell everybody. Surprise. Yeah, well, it's quite the joke. It's actually a pretty nice polished joke on my wrist, but I agree. That no, I, I don't think it's for me, but it, uh, you know, definitely a lot of people are, are really enjoying it. It certainly looks slick. Yeah, it's it has not changed my life the way the iPhone did, or certainly the way having a computer, a Mac, did. 
I've seen a lot of my friends just spontaneously standing up all of a sudden. So it, it seems to have uh, a pretty big effect on some people. Yeah. Kind of start, kind of tries to run your life. It was actually the most hilarious part of the keynote was that I was sitting in a row and several of the timers went off and we just kind of people looking around to see if anybody was going to stand. Nice. I guess everybody stayed seated. Yes. <laughs> in, in one of the, in one of the other sessions for the release notes showing people actually got up and stood up a little bit, stretched around and sat back down. You know, I feel like in, in any other case that would be incredibly rude, but if it's at WWDC, it's like, you know, guys, this is your fault. Yeah, you're the ones that did this to us. So address, address sanitizer. Yeah, address sanitizer. Mike, do you want to tell us sort of what yeah, this means? Yeah, so I think I described this as the best thing since the invention of the wheel, but uh, there might be a couple other things. I don't know, penicillin or whatever. Anyway, I'm sure everybody knows about Valgrind, which is this crazy tool that runs your program and does tons of checks on it. And every time you overstep an array or something like that, it tells you what's going on. And it's really cool, but there's two major disadvantages with Valgrind. Uh, one is that it slows down your app a lot to the point where it's kind of hard to use an interactive app with it, and especially something like a game. And the other one is that it's never really worked very well on the Mac, so most people haven't really used it. And Address Sanitizer is kind of like a Valgrind light. Uh, it's basically, it's built into the compiler. It essentially f annotates your code with a lot of checks. So, you know, something really common in C code and by extension Objective C code is you allocate an array and it's slightly too short and you write like one byte off the end. And 99% of the time your code works just fine doing that because, you know, it's a little bit of padding or something like that. But then, you know, that one little chance comes along and blows up your, your app. And then it's impossible to figure out what's going on because you can't make it happen again. And, you know, it's the worst part about programming in, in a C-based language. And so what Address Sanitizer does is it has basically behind your back, you don't have to really do anything besides turn it on. But the compiler goes through and puts in all this stuff that makes sure that you're playing within the rules, essentially. And so when you write off the end of that array, instead of crashing every so often, it immediately stops and says, hey, you stepped off the end of this array. It is this long. You wrote in this spot, which is off the end. It was allocated over here, and it basically just gives everything you need to fix the bug to you on a plate, essentially. And it's really nice, and Xcode 7 just makes it a single checkbox. So you can just flip that on, run your code, and uh, notice all the bugs that you've had in there for years and never knew about. I thought this looked really cool when I saw it. So anybody who's done app development and uh, has had apps out in the wild that users are using has, you know, has probably gotten a, if you're getting crash reports at all, you get some crash reports where you look at it and you think, well, yes, I can see this is crashing, but I cannot tell anything from this stack trace that, that helps me figure out where this crash is happening. And a lot of times the problem is because the real bug was actually far away from where the crash happened. And, uh, for some hopefully fairly large set of those kind of crashes, this will help you actually track them down finally. And they tend to be really subtle, right? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, they they're often very rare. So it's uh, you know you could do the same thing a thousand times in a row and hit the crash once, or it's not clear. You know, you you perform some action over here and it crashes over there, so you don't know what caused it, so you can never figure out how to reproduce it. I definitely encourage anybody who has a little free time download the Xcode Seven Beta, run your app in it, turn on Address Sanitizer, and see. And I bet you will be surprised. There are probably things lurking in your code right now. Right, so I was just going to ask if you had actually tried this out yet. Yes, I did. Uh, not extensively, but a little bit. I, uh, I put some of my code in there and ran it, and I found a couple of legitimate bugs and fixed them, and it was wonderful. It's, it's very easy to use and uh, clear output, and uh, it's great. So far, it's, it's excellent. 
there's a I haven't actually watched it yet, but they did a whole session on this, and it, the reason I haven't watched it is because I think there was some technical problem with the session video, where the audio and video were out of sync, and so they pulled it down to fix that, and it took them a few days. But it, I think as of last night, it's up now, so um, I'm kind of excited to watch that, but I think it's it's worth watching. It's the advanced debugging and an address sanitizer. I think they also talked about some other debugging features that you can use. I don't know if any of them are actually new or not, but other than address sanitizer, but I'm eager to watch that and so learn more about X, this. Xcode has had the ability to run a static analysis on your code for a while. I haven't used it in a while. I remember Xcode 5, I could run a static analysis on the Objective-C code. What does the address sanitizer add onto that? So it's sort of like the, a complement to it, really. They, they would really work very nicely together. So the static analyzer is looking for problems in your code that can be found just by inspecting the source, right? You know, you do something... You, you allocate an array here, for example, and then you do something with it right next to it. And if you know, the compiler can draw a line between these and say, if your code follows this path and this path, then this is a problem. And that works great, especially because you don't actually have to figure out a path that hits that code. You know, as long as the compiler sees it, it doesn't actually have to run to find problems in it. So you don't have problems with things like test coverage, where you forget to press a certain button in your app so that code never runs, you never find problems with it. But the other side is that static analysis can only find so much. You know, from just looking at the code, there are problems that maybe span a lot of different files or just uh, involve calculations that are too complicated for the compiler to follow or something like that. And so there are a lot of cases where the static analyzer just cannot find certain types of bugs. And so what Address Sanitizer does is it sort of fills in a lot of those gaps by looking at how your program runs as it runs instead of just looking at the source code. It can find problems where you're... Stepping over the bounds at runtime, you know where it actually happens, instead of trying to figure out that it will happen. And the you know there are, there are cases that it won't find either. If the, if you don't run the code, or if you do run the code but you never hit the error case, then the address sanitizer is never going to notice a problem, whereas a static analyzer might. So they definitely complement each other very well. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I also think that the stat static analyzer in Clang is um, a lot of what it checks is Objective C code, and I think previous to Arc. It's been a while since I've written any code that was not ARC, but um, previous to ARC, it would find a lot of memory management bugs, like over-releases or uh, leaks, that kind of thing. And it seems like the stat or the the address sanitizer is likely to find problems that tend to be more common in code where you're actually using C or C++ or interoperating with those from Objective-C or Swift, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. The static analyzer does analyze certain uh, C problems as well. It can tell, you know, if you uh, you have a variable here and you have some conditionals here which initialize it and you forgot a spot. So, you know, if you follow this path, you access that variable uninitialized. It'll find things like that. Um, it can find certain memory accesses that are illegal. But the memory management stuff definitely was the big advantage before, and that's kind of been made obsolete with ARC. And, and and in fact, ARC is essentially them saying, well, the static analyzer knows if you've made this mistake, so why don't we just have the static analyzer not? Yeah, that's an interesting make that special case because for something like an uninitialized variable, you know, it's okay. How do you fix that? The compiler can't know because who knows what it should be set to. But with memory management, there's always a right answer, right? So the, the static analyzer was basically saying, okay, you forgot a release here, and instead of saying that, like, okay, why don't you just do it for me, please? But uh, I think the static analyzer is still useful. You know, I run it on my code uh, occasionally, and it does every so often pop up with something that I've missed. I was actually going to scold Jame a little because uh, the team I work on, we tease each other if somebody checks in a, a problem that the static analyzer flags. We don't set it. You can set it up to run 
every time you build your app. We don't do that because it, it annoys me because it makes builds take longer, but uh, we do run it very frequently and it doesn't often catch anything. And often when it does catch something, it's not really a big deal, but still it makes you feel better about your code to see no static analyzer errors and it will catch some, some that are fairly common. So Jame, you should use it again. I should be doing it more often. All Thank the you. time. Thank you, Sensei. And turn on address sanitizer and I'm doing everything that way too. And then right. Have perfect code everywhere. No, no more okay. bugs. Right. Bug free from now on. Um, you mentioned that Valgrind has a, and you talked about this a little bit. You mentioned that, that a tool like Valgrind has a pretty bad performance impact. And I've seen that before. I've tried to use it and you end up with an app that is barely usable because there's so much overhead. But I know Apple mentioned that address sanitizer had very small performance overhead. Do you know if they quantified that at all? Was it? I seem to recall that address sanitizer is on average something like two to five times slowdown, which is significant, obviously, but not a showstopper for most code. And it's going to depend on exactly what your code is doing, but I think that's what they said was was typical. Well, two to five times sounds scary, and you certainly want, wouldn't want to ship an app that was two to five times slower than it should be, but it doesn't mean that you can't click a button and get a response or something, you know, without making yourself right. coffee. The, the thing with Valgrind, Valgrind, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think it's more like 50 times. And what would happen there is, you know, if, if you had anything real time, like a game or something like that, you basically just couldn't use it. I remember I got it up and running on the Mac ages ago, and I, I had a game that I was uh, fiddling with, and I ran it in Valgrind, and it was just, you know, it, it was no longer real time. You couldn't play it. And I could sort of get through it by, you know, I'd press a key and wait a little bit, and, you know, a new frame would arrive and things like that. But it wasn't practical for a lot of things. And I think with address sanitizer, you know, if you're, even if you're running a game and it's real time and it slows your code down by a factor of three, you know, maybe you get 10 frames per second instead of 30. And that's obviously not ideal for a gamer, but it should be okay for testing it. I'm curious to know, there are some tools that are that have been in Xcode for a long time that are sort of along these lines. There's Guard Malloc, which I think will try to tell you if you've gone beyond the end of a, of a, a malloc block of memory, beyond the end of an array or something. Or if you, I think it will tell you if you've, you try to use memory after you've freed it. And then there's NS Zombie, of course, that Objective-C, especially pre-ARC Objective-C programmers are very familiar with, which helps you catch bugs where you've free, where you've released an Objective-C object and then tried to message it or do something with it later. Does this obsolete those? Do they still, are they still useful or do they do things that address sanitizer does not do? I think it may actually obsolete them. I'm not sure about zombies. Those, those might still be useful. I'd, I'd have to check out what address sanitizer does with freed memory. For something like guard malloc, I think address sanitizer basically is doing everything that does and more. The one thing that address sanitizer does that's a little worse, basically, is it has to be, it's a compile time option. You know, it has to annotate your code. So a lot of these other tools can work on existing binaries and that doesn't come up that much, but if it ever did, you know, you can turn on guard malloc with a binary you already have sitting there on disk and run it and see what happens. You can't really do that with address sanitizer because it has to go through an insert code at build time. Oh, right. That's interesting because guard, guard malloc that, just does something different at runtime when malloc is called, right? Exactly. It's just a replacement implementation of malloc. So it can, you can just kind of, you know, wedge it in there anywhere. But other than that, which I don't think that really comes up much in, in reality. Uh, address sanitizer seems to be a superset of what something like Guard Malloc does. Cool. Anything else anybody wants to talk about? I think we're getting kind of close to the end. Yeah, there were a couple of quick things. I just figured we wouldn't have time to go into depth to, but I like, I saw the crash logs edition in Xcode uh, 7, 
And uh, we are using, we're currently using Crashlytics. I'm, I'm really curious as to tw- how long that that's going to be in place if we can get some polygated crash information. If I'm not mistaken, though, I think it is uh, dependent on user opt-in. So that may actually uh, affect whether or not we pull our Crashlytics uh, integration out of the apps that we're using. And the other thing was deep linking in iOS 9, which, which we will use quite a bit, which I think is a great feature. Uh, one of the things that we've always had trouble doing is providing us a really a simple way of getting users via links into our apps, in particular uh, uh, locations within the app, without going through Safari. So with iOS 9, the ability to implement deep linking will allow us to bypass Safari, and we can actually have some pretty informative links to allow users, particularly new signups or information about current games and things of that nature. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think a lot of users are as well. A lot of developers are as well. Yeah, and it sounds like something where the users will really benefit clearly and immediately and uh, definitely looking forward to having my the apps that I use support that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I am too. Regarding the crash, crash logs, logs yeah. in Xcode, I, I assumed that they, did they actually announced this last year. They announced that iTunes Connect, I think it was at WWDC last year, they announced that iTunes Connect would would have crash logs and not just aggregated crash logs like they had before, you know, where they bubbled up the most common ones or something, but like actual every crash log would get submitted i got the impression i'm assuming that the new thing they announced is not so much new capability in in that sense it was simply that xcode will pull those for you from itunes connect and give you a nice ui for for dealing with them for it'll symbolicate them for you uh, not sure if they were doing that in itunes connect or not but it'll symbolicate them it has some ui so you can mark them as resolved and figure out which crash crashes you already handled or not or you know fixed or not I don't know if that's really going to give us something that we don't already have, but it may make that easier. And if it gets more developers to, um, you know, not ignore their crash reports, I think that's definitely a good thing. The opt-in thing kind of worries me a little because I'm not sure what the opt-in rates will be. But presumably, if you've got a big enough user base, only as long as some percentage of them have opted in, you're going to get the crashes that actually matter, right? You would hope, but every time, I mean, we, we always fear anytime we present any sort of alert view to get users to click yes to sign in to give us access, you know, just by default, you're just going to get a, a number of people that are just going to say no, whether, and they won't read. <laughs> well, they, so they have the app analytics stuff in iTunes Connect, which is opt in, and I think I've seen opt in rates of something like 25%, which is pretty low, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It seems low. It means only 25% of people clicked yes. Correct. I think that's, I think that's an accurate number. Um, if I can, I, I don't use Crashlytics, but I've worked on a few contract projects where people used it, and it's not my favorite. And somebody needs to deprecate the menu bar API just for Crashlytics. I hate that menu bar app. Or have they gotten rid of that, Alondo? I don't see it. It's the thing that has to run up in. It's it's a it's a Mac app that runs in your menu bar. Oh, it is, but I don't interact with that. Oh. Almost, I almost never interact with that. It's there. It's still there, though. Well, at least when I used it, it it would periodically download a new version of the Crashlytics framework and install it. You know, replace the Crashlytics framework in your Xcode project folder on disk. And so you'd have the main thing that bugged me is then source control would be dirtied, and it's like oh, I didn't yeah. even do anything. Crashlytics yeah. is doing stuff behind my back. Now we haven't had that problem in quite some time. I think they've improved that. Oh, uh, we used to have to do new builds and, and and push things up, but it's been pretty seamless now. That's good. One more thing, if I can just uh, real quick. Yeah. With Xcode 7 and iOS 9, apparently they now let you install your own apps on your own device without uh, subscription to the developer program, which I think is really cool and deserves to be pointed out. I think I think that's a a big deal that has not gotten a it certainly didn't get a, a lot of press, if any press, from Apple. I'm not sure they even announced it. Um, 
you know, on stage, but, uh, yeah, yeah. kind of quiet. I think that's a big deal because it, it's not quite the same as the side loading that everybody asks or, you know, has said that Android has and, and whatever, because you have to download Xcode and that's some, somewhat of a barrier to entry. But just this idea that it's sort of making your device more yours is, is a big deal to me. I like that. Yeah. Step in the right direction. Definitely. I don't know. I mean, I think their motivation was more like it would help bring developers to the platform, but that doesn't really matter to me. It's a good thing. That and merging the uh, app developer accounts as well, too, the ability to only have one account, being able to develop for both Mac and iOS, I thought was a nice small step. I but, yep. Say, I'm saving $100 a year. Yeah. I'm not going to complain about that. All right, guys. Well, there was a ton of stuff, actually. I, didn't, I, I felt like this WWDC was a little bit light compared to last year, and in some ways it was. I mean, it's hard to top the announcement of Swift uh, as a brand new language, but there's actually a fairly large number of cool things that Apple announced and they tend to, they're sort of more on the incremental improvement category, but I'm yeah, excited. It's a, like, uh, a lot like 10.6 back in the day when it was sort of uh, a little bit underwhelming when they went through all, all the user facing stuff, but then they got underneath and there was suddenly a lot of really great things. And I think that can only be seen as a good thing considering Definitely. some of the stuff that has happened recently on both platforms. I have high hopes for the next year. Well, thanks for talking um, about all this stuff. I learned some things and have some new things to go check out and some sessions that I want to watch. And I could have just stayed home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, just, you, you wasted the money on a ticket, right? I know, man. As for our listeners, I would encourage everyone to, if you don't already, which I'm sure most everyone does, but watch the videos for the sessions as you can because... Um, there's a lot of good information in there. Some of the stuff is stuff that you don't really find anywhere else. It's not necessarily going to be in the documentation. You'll get little tips and um, have things pointed out that are difficult to discover otherwise. So it's a very valuable thing to watch these sessions, even if you couldn't make it in person. All right, should we get to the picks? Yep, let's do it. Alondo, do you want to start? Sure, I have two picks. Uh, the first pick is actually an article that talks about something we didn't get a chance to talk about briefly, and that was Bitcode that was mentioned briefly. I think it was in the keynote or the state of the platform, but basically the idea that uh, you won't have to make so many drastic changes in the future if the like rumored uh, processor changes come forth. There's an article on the next web that, that delves into a little bit, uh, and I think that was uh, worth reading. Uh, it doesn't go into deep detail, but it does give developers an understanding of what's happening there. And uh, my second pick is actually uh, charging and sync cable. I go through lightning cables like crazy. I don't know about other users. So one of the things that I picked up is a more a sturdier, sturdier lightning charger uh, cable that has actually lasted for months now. And I actually, um, I'm pretty pleased with it. Uh, so I'll include a link to the lightning cable there. It's at Sam's Club, but you might be able to get it at another location as well. Cool, thanks. Uh, James, do you have some picks for us? Okay, I've got one pick. And if you're listening to this, I'm going to make a conjecture that you like podcasts. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, and at one point I was like, you know what, I wonder if people that aren't programmers have podcasts, because that's all I listen to. And a number of people recommended uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is a very extensive view on the topics it covers. I'm going through its blueprints for Armageddon, which is talking about World War One, and by extensive I mean he talks for two hours before he gets to any invasion. So I think it's at least twenty hours long. I'm quite a bit into it, maybe halfway, but it's good stuff if you want to learn about history, World War One. 
That was the big war that we kind of skimmed over growing up. World War II got most of the press, but very interesting. So Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. Sounds good. I'll have to check that out. Thanks, James. Uh, Mike, do you have some picks? Yeah, my pick this week is WebAssembly, which just got announced uh, this morning, I think. It's uh, essentially an attempt at replacing or supplanting or augmenting JavaScript on the web with a uh, sort of bytecode executable. So currently, if you want to run code in a web browser, you either write JavaScript or you write something that compiles to JavaScript, and JavaScript is not the greatest language in the world. And everybody has been wondering for ages, you know, what? Uh, why doesn't anybody use something like Java bytecode or, you know, some sort of assembly language? And there's ASM.js, which was sort of an attempt to make that happen, but it was weird. And so now all of the big browser uh, makers have all sort of come together and decided that they are going to make this happen. Uh, WebAssembly, it's a new, essentially assembly language bytecode level thing that will run code next to JavaScript as a first-class citizen. And uh, it looks really exciting. It's it's the biggest thing to happen on the web in a long time. And I think it's going to be a huge deal. Cool. Thanks, Mike. I've just got one pick today. I'm sure this has been picked before probably multiple times on past episodes, but I think it's really relevant today. And that is ASCIIWWDC.com. So this is just a website. Uh, I think it's by Matt Thompson that has plain text transcripts of all the WWDC sessions going back to 2010, actually. The reason I really like this is because you can't search a video. And often I'll have this thought, you know, I'm working with one of these new APIs or something, or even an API that's not new that was released a few years ago. And I know that it was mentioned. I remember hearing something mentioned in in a session, but I don't know where to find it. And so this way you can search through all the sessions. And it also makes it so you can read... Um, you can just read the transcripts if you don't want to watch a video for some reason. I believe the text is actually pulled from the annotation or the subtitle track on the videos. The 2015 videos are not actually up yet. I don't know if that's because Apple hasn't posted those, the videos with subtitles, or it's just they're just waiting for somebody to do some manual process to generate them or what. But anyway, I'm I'm sure that will happen soon. We we're far from covering everything new that was announced at the conference this year. And there's a lot more to learn. And this gives you a good way to sort of get a brief overview too, in addition to all the searching and fast reading that it enables. So it's a pretty good tool. That's ASCII WWDC. That's my pick. All right, guys. Thanks for being on. And my pleasure. If, if nobody yeah, has anything else, I guess we'll see everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 